0: Roar, 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 roar. This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSE, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. For this episode, I'm joined by Alex Kufos, a research engineer in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Stanford University. Alex received his PhD from George Mason University in 2014 and is going to share with us today how his journey has led him to where he is now at Stanford. So first, welcome, Alex.
1: Thank you. I'm very excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, I got really excited with these podcasts when I happened to stumble upon them and thought like, oh man, these relate to me so well.
0: That's really great to hear. And that's definitely something that I've been hoping for, because I feel like there's a lot of us out there who are having similar experiences, but we don't know about one another. So it's really refreshing to say, hey, I can relate to that. (laughs) Definitely. So first, let's go back, maybe starting when you first got interested in programming or some kind of research. Can you tell us how you got started and how you got to where you are today?
1: I grew up with computers just in my house. My dad always had some computer and just got really interested in using computers, playing games on computers, just learning all the different tools that they provided. So I just continued to be like, you know, very interested in computers. I never really thought about programming in particular until a little bit later in my life. I took a C++ class in high school, but like was always more interested in the kind of science and physics specifically, which is what I got my PhD kind of more in, in computational physics. You know, I realized that programming can be used for literally everything these days. So I started in kind of closer to the end of my bachelor's. I started getting much more focused on coding and creating small research-based applications for understanding some physics problems that we were working on. And then that led me into getting a fellowship in my last year in my bachelor's, so this was 2007-2008, called the Undergraduate Research in Computational Mathematics, And that actually got me in touch with my advisor for my PhD, or who would become my advisor for my PhD. That was in more specifically computational physics and computational quantum mechanics. And I just started learning how to like seriously program at that point. And this was all in Fortran, which is (laughs) something that is still very prominent in very hardcore low-level science communities, but isn't as common practice these days in general industry. From that, I didn't really learn object-oriented programming too much, but after the PhD, I decided that I wanted to do industry more than I wanted to do the whole like postdoc route or academia route. I ended up taking a job for a government contractor. That code was in C++ and obviously object oriented and was actually a visualization for helping train sailors to pilot submarines and use the periscope that would be on submarines. We ended up moving out to California and I needed to find another job and found this job at Stanford, which was working on self-driving cars. and They needed a person who was a little bit more familiar with simulation and so i started at stanford and have been working on like pretty much everything at this point
0: wow so i have so many questions first we just talked to damien a few weeks ago and i think he'd be very happy to hear that you really delved into fortran as one of your early languages And it's really interesting personally to hear that you fell in love with this programming aspect of research. And I think that's something I can strongly relate to because it happened to me as well. I wanted to bring up this particular experience that you had because I think it's fairly common and actually could even be kind of confusing that when you graduate, you say, you know, I really love to do this thing. I'm very confident that I love programming and doing that with applied math. But then when you sort of look out at the choices for a future that you perceive are available to you, you kind of feel forced to shove yourself into a scientific discipline, not as someone that just works on code, but as someone who's asking hard questions and getting grants and, you know, going that traditional path. So I'm wondering, is that something that you felt at the time?
1: Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I knew probably like a year to two years before finalizing the dissertation and doing the defense that I didn't really want to go into academia directly, like as much as I really enjoyed doing the research and trying to find answers, trying to solve these problems in a theoretical way, and then just using code to try to help solve it. I really felt like I wanted to just kind of understand coding better and be able to really understand how programming could be done or should be done kind of like you know these ideas of best practices what i really wanted to do was exactly the role that i have now which is a research software engineer and kind of being that person who understands the code and understands the science and understands what the user and the general public would like from these applications and trying to have that understanding of all of them and piecing things together and creating the code that can solve that. And I felt like it was, well, at least when I was trying to search for a job in 2015, I could not find that position anywhere. It was either try to get a postdoc in a lab or go straight into industry. (laughs) And when I found out about this program and about the USRSC, I was super happy to see that the thing that I was always looking for does actually exist and that people are promoting it and that there are other people out there like me who were interested in doing this and that there is a community that can help support finding more people this without having to struggle for, you know, months to a year or longer trying to find that ideal position that you want.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your current role in the context of research software engineering. You sort of already told us the basics of how you kind of found it, what you see your role as in the context of the lab. I'm wondering if you want to share maybe some specifics of the work that you've done, maybe a project that you think is representative, and then describe sort of what the role of a research software engineer means within that project.
1: When I started in this position, the job title or the job description was specifically oriented towards helping with a specific grant that the department had. And this grant was hosted by Toyota Research Institute, or TRI. They're doing these, what they're calling, CARLA challenges. CARLA is a self-driving car simulator that is open source, run by some people who are at least somewhat linked to TRI, you know, just are trying to create a open source simulator for self-driving cars to help promote research and testing and safety validation and stuff for these cars. And so I was hired to help for these Carla challenges. And these Carla challenges were specifically oriented towards universities trying to create what we call AV stacks or autonomous vehicle stacks, which are the, is the code base that will do all the parts of the self-driving. So perception, which is like sensing everything that's around you some planning, which would be taking that perception and making some decisions off of it, and then control, which would be taking that plan and actually executing it in the car. So telling the steering wheel how to turn or how much to accelerate. Stanford at the time wasn't really competing in these CARLA challenges because we didn't really have an AV stack to start with. And the professors were more, a lot more oriented towards trying to publish papers and creating interesting research ideas rather than trying to create the next safe car because, although some of them are, but (laughs) it just wasn't, you know, the priority for the majority of the lab. We're not you know, industry, we're not trying to be the first one to provide a safe vehicle. I started with that. And so that's obviously one of the specifics that I was doing and still am working on. And at this point, it's kind of been a lot of effort on my part and then also trying to become like a project manager in some sense for helping and managing other students, other grad students who are in the lab who have interesting research that could apply to this and trying to piece these things together so that we can have a nice, reasonable submission to these, to these challenges. One of my biggest pet peeves with the whole just research industry at the moment, and I think a lot of people I've talked to have similar feelings, is this idea of publish or die kind of thing, publish or perish. The amount of publications you have to do these days to just get your name out there or to feel like you are doing something successful for the research community is kind of a little sad and I think leaves a lot to still be desired and a lot out with maybe the actual thoroughness or robustness of of the stuff that you're doing or the research that you're doing. For example, in terms of the actual research engineering or the software engineering aspects of this, the things that always get left out are testing or documentation, or, you know, the validation that you really need to have rather than just kind of like scanning over the results and saying, yeah, okay, that looks right. The role of an RSC becomes even more important these days because researchers are so focused on, on publishing papers on getting results and being the next one to publish it and, you know, not getting it like kind of swiped out from underneath them because somebody else does it slightly faster than them. Having these RSEs around that can really try to understand the basic goals of the researchers and then providing a robust piece of software that can be reproducible, testable, and can be validated every single time you make new results or you find new results, I think is very pertinent and crucial. And I really wish more universities would focus on trying to find these people to help labs make even better research. Just because you're publishing a lot of papers doesn't mean that you're doing better than anybody else. It just happens to be that maybe you're really good at publishing papers, maybe you're really good at coming up with unique ideas but it doesn't necessarily imply that you are doing the best work that you possibly can if you're trying to rush a bunch of grad students who are also working on other things to create some code.
0: I completely agree. And what do they say? Garbage in, garbage out. You know, getting something out there and done more quickly and getting a citation somehow is more valued in our sort of research culture. And something that I've been always sort of greatly troubled by is that the criteria sort of for validating a research software engineer is kind of the same model as a researcher. RSCs are being shoved into this model where your worth is based on still your publications. And alarmingly, obviously, it's, it's much harder to publish software. Most software papers, if you look at them, they might have the software, but then they're sort of wrapped around some kind of analysis, some kind of still scientific questions. It's rare to see a journal like Joss where you just say, hey, Hey, here's the software, and I want you to evaluate it for the documentation and what it does and the utility. And no, we're not, you know, we don't have a table of results here because that's not what it's about.
1: I found out about Joss relatively recently, I think within the last year, maybe right before the pandemic. And I had actually never heard of it before. And I thought that's a great idea actually having a journal oriented towards the software itself. That also leads into the discussion of open source, which is. I think one of the ways that people can at least get their work out there and have it be validated by others and to see exactly what stuff does. I I think one of the bigger problems again, with all the research that's coming out these days is that people claim, they're using these algorithms and that they work and that, you know, the results that they find seem great, but most people don't end up publishing the code anywhere or, Even if they do, it's not part of the review process at all. I think that's where these RSE positions really make a lot of sense not putting it directly on the graduate students who might not want to continue with programming later down the line or at least not as their main career also providing a resource for those graduate students that might want to do it just knowing that that kind of position exists and it's something that they can strive for rather than just having to assume well i either have to stay in academia or i have to go to industry and there's no in-between
0: you totally just read my mind. <laughs> no, seriously. In our roles, when we think about growing professionally and personally and acquiring new skills and even kind of furthering our career in the sense having something to show for what we've done, if you kind of look, you know, we can't build up a long list of publications that say, hey, this is my value as a research software engineer because most of our value is in the documentation that we write, in the tests, in the code. And there really isn't a straightforward and transparent way to measure that. And And so open source provides actually kind of two things. It provides this beautiful way For us to like actually put our work out there so someone can look at it, they can look at the documentation or the code itself or the test and be like, huh, they seem to be doing a good job. Of course, it's kind of subjective. You know, you can imagine there'd be other ways to evaluate. But open source also, I I see it as like this really nice model for research too, because it does practice this transparency and automation and best practices. And I do strongly feel that if you imagine a lab that's sort of very secret and they say, oh yeah, we did this, but they don't share their code. If they just embrace some of these practices of open science, open source, it really would make the world just improve a lot very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree.
0: Yeah, we really need that guy in the sky from Rick and Morty like show me your code. Right. <laughs> I want to go into a couple of questions that are probably a little harder to answer and please just talk about what you're comfortable but obviously this past year has been to say what has been hard would be like the biggest understatement ever. We are in unprecedented times and life is very different than anything that it looked like before. Knowing that RCs are funded on grants and soft money and that positions can sort of appear and then go away. What kind of challenges are you facing right now with your role?
1: I think this is very much hitting home at the moment because, so that grant that I mentioned earlier, this job that I have. They have this idea of this five-year program, which this role was a part of, and that funding just ended entirely. So they were doing a kind of like a recompete, a new contract for the universities to make proposals for the next five years, which they're calling University 2.0. And in those new proposals, they decided because of COVID, they were not going to fund any of these kind of individual people type proposals. And it's sad because, like, I've been working with a couple of labs in the aeronautic and astronautic department for a while. And from what I've heard, even from people not in the department, but who have just talked to me outside, that they are super appreciative of all the stuff that we've been able to do since I've been here. And they were asking before the pandemic whether or not I'd be interested in sticking around after the two-year agreement that I had, the two-year fixed term that I had. Pretty much all of that's kind of gone out the window now because of the pandemic since you know Stanford's obviously reducing roles due to budget constraints and taking a more conservative approach on this, and then TRI doing the same, it ends up that instead of having this opportunity probably to have just continued this role and maybe a more, maybe not permanent, but at least a more longer term kind of thing that maybe had a future to it, it totally just vanished and now I'm in search of finding something new. Which puts me back in the same position I was pretty much when I ended my PhD. And that's, again, trying to find this job that happened to be what I have now in this mix of either industry or academia, but not going full hog on either of them.
0: That's just really awful. You find yourself in this terrible, really ironic position of, I need to figure out how to recover most of my salary or find another job. Despite the fact that the work that I'm doing every day is really core and essential for the research of the group, how does that make you feel?
1: Obviously, it doesn't make me feel great (laughs) and obviously frustrated. The last review I got was like, I think I got like excellent reviews and everything. And actually, I was also supposed to get like a pay raise, which my advisor didn't even device was a possibility until I asked because I was just like, well, I've been here for a year and like, I seem to be doing okay. Do you think there'd be possible? They can't seem to find a way to keep this type of roll around is just sad in general, not just for myself personally, but just because I think the lab has really benefited from having somebody who can focus on all this stuff and kind of teach the students best practices and to help facilitate production level code and reproducibility and all these things. And they're going to be losing it, not just because they can't keep me around, but just because they won't even have, from what we've been talking, can't find a way to fund this type of role in any way, shape, or form.
0: I really appreciate you sharing this part of your story. I think it reflects kind of the quintessential issue with research software engineering sort of across the board, especially kind of what you said about how you felt when you are on soft money, even when you are funded maybe for a couple of years, it is a constant source of stress thinking, well, maybe I don't have job security. I mean, arguably nobody has job security You do a really bad, bad job and get fired. But it's almost like a sure thing if you go into an RSC role and then other times you just feel kind of lonely you look around and you're like well was advocating for me? Why is it totally up to me to figure out the funding and my role and the ways that I grow and progress? It's frustrating right. because you wonder about the opportunity cost of staying in your role. You know, I think they call it FOMO, the fear of missing out. What are these other opportunities out there? You know, maybe if you do venture into industry that you might be totally missing, but you don't know it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all those are so true. And I also feel all of them like pretty much every day. You and I have talked a little bit beforehand just because I happened to reach out to you about this predicament that I'm in. I don't know if anybody's ever interviewed you. I think somebody should if they haven't. Just kind of like, you know, the role that you were able to get sounded super ideal when Alex had mentioned it to me having this team that actually could support research software engineers at Stanford that would then be able to kind of have this more job security that as long as you're doing a good job and you're helping these labs with various projects that they come to you know the group for to say, I need somebody who's an expert in website design or I'm somebody I need somebody who's an expert in Docker or I need somebody who's an expert in simulation or, you know, whatever it would be, could come to some team of s- software engineers, research software engineers, I think sounded super ideal. But then obviously I talked to you and it's not quite as heavenly as that sounds, (laughs) but still a lot of you trying to find money yourself rather than it being advocated for you. And it's sad that that type of structure doesn't exist for our types of roles and that you can have some people advocating for you, but only to some extent, because again, it's just not an official thing that most universities are willing to at this point, or maybe just aren't even aware of that they need.
0: That really hits the nail on the head. And it would be fun if someone interviewed me I can give you the short story. I saw a really strong need for something specific, actually, containerization at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And I worked with the head of research computing, and we put together a role, which has another title, by the way, but, you know, on paper, it's a, quote, research software engineer. That would be for two years, it was funding from a lab in the School of Medicine, and then a little bit of funding from actually research computing. And after those two years ran out, it really has been just a consistent how are we going to recover your funding? But on the other hand, we have to kind of try to strive for the change that we want to see. So sometimes, you know, I will feel upset or down that, well, nobody's coming to me with projects and I have to recover my salary and it's not valued. But I feel like if anyone is going to make change, Why not be me? Why not try to do as much as I can to to make a service, to get people aware of it, to kind of slowly build up enough awareness. So maybe someday the university will take notice, like, hey, these people are kind of important. I'd like to think that someday we will have an official group. It's something I struggle thinking about because I really don't want to be a manager. (laughs) So I'm trying to do everything that I can to kind of move toward that slowly without actually having to be a manager. But you totally hit the nail on the head. It is very lonely at times. It's frustrating, it's challenging. I guess that's the reality we live in.
1: (laughs) It is definitely what I'm, I guess I'm going through now as well, but I think you're definitely right about having to be the person who wants to, to advocate for yourself and to push this type of role in a more general thing for the university by trying to make the change yourself By pushing that effort, by trying to find the right people to talk to, anywhere I can help, I would love to be able to help with trying to make this a serious thing at Stanford.
0: I'm not really sure if we can make a difference, but I think we should try. We're coming up on time, but I wanted to quickly give you a chance to use the podcast as a bit of a sounding board. What kind of opportunities, either within or external to Stanford or academia, are you considering for your next steps?
1: Because I'm currently doing robotics related work and programming, I've been actually looking at a couple more industry direct positions. One of the reasons I kind of avoided the postdoc position originally was because of this idea of, you know, every year having to find more funding for yourself. And industry is obviously a very good place to get a lot of coding experience and to better understand kind of some of the best practices that at least one group does. But one of the things that I keep noticing with all the roles that I've been applying to is even though they say they want a kind of generalist, they almost always have a specific role that they have in mind for you. And then they start kind of grilling you on that one thing and they don't really seem to understand or maybe they just don't care because they don't need that all the little nuances that a RSC might understand that general researcher in a specific field might not what i've been looking for and what i'm trying to find which i still just it seems to be a bit hard is to find this kind of more generalist robotics type of role or even just a generalist kind of research software engineering role where they want somebody who is well-versed in various topics, kind of understands the systems engineering sort of way of looking at things, trying to see the big picture and kind of trying to whittle that down into designing a system that would make sense to get to your end goal. I think one of the things with industry positions these days is that they feel like they've already have those answers. And they're looking for very specific people who can solve one piece of that puzzle. I'm looking for being able to come in, see problems that exist, taking a large look at all of it, trying to come up with solutions that will get us to the goal that they ultimately want.
0: Awesome. If anyone listening is offering a role or knows of roles that would be of interest to Alex, we will include his contact information alongside the episode so you can reach out. So Alex, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I think we touched on some kind of deep and very important things when discussing the many issues with the RSC role. I guess it can kind of be a downer at some times, but I think we should both try to be still optimistic for the future and have confidence that if we just keep trying and we don't decide to give up and go in our bed and eat Cheetos, we will reach some better state of the world. Yeah,
1: I I definitely appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. And I will have to say I am very much more optimistic about these roles than I was before I found out about this whole community that existed. Knowing that people are striving for it these days, that Princeton has an active community for actually promoting it in their university, that other universities seem to be following suit, that we're trying to make a difference here at Stanford. I think they're all very positive and definitely
0: hopeful. Amen. Thank you so much for being on RSC Stories today. Thank you for having me.